Well, friends, I would invite you now to stand as we read the Lord's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 34. This is at the end of the wilderness wandering. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which was opposite of Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all of Nephtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plains, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob when I said I will give it to your offspring. Moses, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab opposite of Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he had died. His eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Our great and gracious Heavenly Father, as we now consider these last moments in the life of Moses, we just pray that you would reveal to our hearts through your Holy Spirit truth that we desperately need to know. May we be challenged, convicted, and also encouraged. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in... 1995, or at least in the early 90s, the state of California had decided to adopt a kind of hard-on-crime stance. And so they instituted a new law called the Three Strikes Law. What the Three Strikes Law kind of entailed was if you committed any sort of misdemeanor, violent or nonviolent, it acted like a strike against you. And when you hit the third strike, it opened the door for judges to issue much more severe punishments. Well, in 1995, a man by the name of Leandro Andretti, 37 years old, father of three, military veteran, was out of work, concerned for what he was going to do, how he was going to care for his family, and had one prior nonviolent misdemeanor on his record, found himself in a small Kmart in Ontario, California. He was tempted to steal movies, Disney movies, for his children. He got caught shoplifting, 
He was arrested. He was given a fine. He walked away, and now he had two strikes on his record. A few weeks later, he finds himself in a different small town. He finds himself in another Kmart, and he's trying to steal movies for his children. He's caught, he's arrested, and he's put before a judge who loves the new hard-on-crime policies. And so rather than giving him a sentence of one year in prison or fines that could be anywhere from $100,000 to $200,000, Leandro was sentenced to two counts of 25 years to life in prison. If you go and read the court case, he had only tried to steal $150 worth of movies for his kids. You can imagine he appealed the case it went to the Supreme Court. It was highly debated. And the Supreme Court split the vote 5-4 in the state of California, in favor of the state of California. And so Leandro is serving time in prison until 2046 when he'll be 87 years old. The question that we are asking is, does the punishment fit the crime? I think most of us in here know the answer to that. But maybe... Some of us in here have also wondered when it comes to Moses, if the punishment he received at the end of his life fit the crime or fit the sin that he had committed. So keep that in mind. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 34, but we're also going to jump around a little bit. So buckle up. It's going to be, it's going to be good. It's worth our time. Here we are, end of Moses' life. He's 120 years old, 40 years he has been leading the people of God in the land uh, or in the wilderness, trying to get them to the promised land that God had, had promised. And for every step along the way, the people of Israel have been rebellious. They have been trying. They have questioned Moses' authority. They have doubted who God is, his goodness, and his provision for them. And over and over and over again, Moses has served as an intermediary as a mediator, as an intercessor for these people. And now at the end of his life, in Deuteronomy 34, they come to the very edge of the promised land, and Moses is called up away from the assembly of people. The Lord brings him up onto this mountaintop. He looks out from north to south, and he sees all the land that God has promised, all of it in its entirety. But the final words that the Lord says to Moses are recorded here in Deuteronomy 34, verse 4. Look at what the Lord says. This is the land of which I swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I promised them I would give it to their offspring. But Moses, I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. And the reason the Lord says this to Moses stems from a sin that he committed back in Numbers chapter 20. Back in Numbers chapter 20, at the end of the wilderness wandering, Moses sins. And so if you'll flip over to panel five, we're going to look at Numbers chapter 20. I promise you, this is going to be helpful. We're going to spend a little more time here so that we can understand what exactly it is that Moses did to not be allowed to take the people of God into the promised land. I mean, imagine, 
you know, when I'm thinking about this, imagine how Moses must have felt when he's getting to look out and be this close to going in. He had been hoping for, he had been longing for the day that the people of God would inherit the promise that had been given. He had witnessed all of those miracles throughout the wilderness wandering, and now he's just about there, but he doesn't get to go in, and he has to think about why it is he doesn't get to go in. So look at verse 2 of Numbers chapter 20. Now there was no water for the congregation. And they all assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses. And they said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why is it that you have made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? There is no place for grain or figs, vines, pomegranates, and there is no water for us to drink. So Moses goes before the Lord. Moses and Aaron went into the presence of the assembly, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock to yield its water before their eyes. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and to their cattle. And just look at the first half of verse 9. Moses, or verse 9 and 10. Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had been commanded. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And like when I'm imagining this scene in my mind's eye, if we just stop there for a minute, when I think about what's going on, it's like, it's like when a president is getting off of Air Force One and if anything is going wrong in the country or around the world, when the president gets off, there are all these reporters just waiting for him. And the second he starts walking by, veiled accusations in the form of questions start to get thrown out. And I'm sure all of us have seen a president at any given time maybe snap at the reporters who are asking these questions. Or you think about like, I remember my little brother and I when we'd be in the car with my dad on a long trip and we'd keep asking questions and we'd kind of keep poking the bear until finally you'd get like the speech of like, I've had it up to here with you. 40 years in the wilderness. Every single time something goes wrong, the people of God blame Moses and they do not trust in the Lord. He was a man of incredible patience, I think, that it took, you know, this long to snap. I mean, there are other moments in the Old Testament where we see Moses kind of lose his cool. But here in Deuteronomy 34, look at what Moses says next in verse 10, or in, in Exodus 20, or sorry, Numbers 20. We're going to get to Exodus in a minute, so get ready. In Numbers 20, verse 10, he says, Hear now, you rebels. You rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people, hear now. Shall Aaron and I bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand. He struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. So what is it that Moses did? He wasn't obedient to the Lord. The Lord said, speak to the rock, and instead of speaking to it, in his anger, he strikes it. Psalm 106 puts it well. It says that the people of God angered him at the waters of Mirabah. 
And it went ill with Moses on their account for his spirit had been made bitter towards them. Moses is upset and he's had it up to here with the people of Israel. And so rather than speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock with his staff. God provides water, but then the punishment is issued. Verse 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, And because you did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. That punishment on surface reading seems unfair. I mean, these people have been rebellious the entire time. And so I can understand and relate with Moses to some degree why he's upset with them. But it's not just that they've been rebellious. They've been that way the whole time. What this shows is actually a greater sin that's taking place in the heart of Moses. And I think to answer what that sin is, we have to jump to another passage. But I'm not going to have you read it. I'll just storytell it for you briefly. Exodus chapter 17 the very beginning of the wilderness wandering. The people of God have just witnessed all the miracles of the plagues. They've crossed through the Red Sea. The Lord's provided for their need by giving manna from heaven. And now here they are in this desolate wilderness. They're concerned that they're going to die and they blame Moses for it. And they put Moses on trial. They are going to stone him to death. And Moses says, why are you looking at me? This isn't my fault. The Lord has brought us here. And the people of God, they say, is he here with us? We don't think he's here with us. They doubt his presence. And so Moses and Aaron, they go before the Lord. And the Lord says, I will go before you. And I will stand on the rock. And you are to take the staff. You're going to stand before the assembly of the people of Israel. And you are to strike the rock. And when you do, water will come forth. And so Moses and Aaron, they're obedient in that moment. He strikes the rock, water comes out. And what the people of God do not realize is that in this trial setting in Exodus 17, the Lord has taken the punishment that they deserved. He has taken the strike from the rod, which was a picture of judgment on himself so that they might be saved. That was 40 years ago. Moses is having major deja vu. He's reliving that incident to some degree in Numbers chapter 20. And when the people complain and they grumble and they rebel against him, he's had it up to here. Enough is enough. And so Moses, rather than being obedient to what God had commanded, he strikes the rock. Why does he strike the rock? I think in part, he strikes the rock because that's what worked last time. See, the Lord tells Moses his sin is that he did not believe the command of the Lord. He didn't believe that God could do it by pure power of his voice. And so Moses striking the rock is in a sense Moses taking matters into his own hands. He's he's putting the staff to work to show the people that he and Aaron can bring water for them. 
and therefore they've not upheld the glory and holiness of the Lord before the people. In a sense, they have veiled what these people needed to see from their God. If we imagine the scene, like if we tried to imagine what this would have been like if it had played out how the Lord had told Moses, you can imagine all the assembly of the people standing off from this rock and like a geyser in Yellowstone National Park, all of a sudden when Moses prays and asks the Lord to bring water from the rock, it explodes out of the earth and clean and clear and cool, refreshing water is brought forward to save the people. And the only thing that they can attribute it to is Yahweh and his provision and his presence with them. That is what they were going to need as they went in to conquer the promised land. And what we are going to see in this sermon series over the coming weeks and months as we go into the life of Joshua for a little bit, into the book of Judges, and finally kind of wrapping up in the minor prophets, we are going to see a people who fail to trust the Lord time and time and time again. And so in a sense, we're getting, we're getting a feel for the weightiness of the sin that Moses committed. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, Paul helps us to take it a little bit further. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that the rock that had followed the people of Israel throughout the wilderness, the rock that had provided them with living water so that they would not perish, that rock was Christ. It was the Lord Jesus who was providing and protecting and caring for these people all throughout their time in this desolate desert. And so, to take this a little bit further, Moses has failed as the mediator of God to point the people to the one who can save them. They needed to trust him more than anything else. And so if we were trying to describe or explain what kind of sin Moses committed, I think discontentment is a great word for it. Discontentment in the sense that if we're, if we're defining it, it is a lack of trust in the providence, sovereignty, and goodness of God. Moses shows a lack of trust by thinking that the obedience to God is always best. Even when it doesn't make sense, even when it might be hard, or when the results might not be something you expect. The Lord commanded Moses to speak to the rock and he failed to do so. And this has, this has major implications in our own life. This can be applied so easily to our own life because discontentment is one of those sins that when it takes root, it starts to manifest in all sorts of different ways. Think about in your own life how it's easy not to trust in the Lord and to trust that being obedient to him is always best no matter the circumstances. It might show itself up at work when you're asked to do something that goes against the character of God or what his word has told us to do and you are tempted because of your standing with others, how other people might view you or think about you, what your boss might say about you or how he expects you to react or respond. 
you might be tempted not to be obedient to the word of God, but instead do things your own way. You know, it might be that you, you're in a relationship and you're not married yet, but you're willing to make compromises because you feel like though this person doesn't know the Lord, I feel like I want it to go a certain way. And so rather than trust that the Lord has a plan that he can provide, that he is going to work these things out, you take matters into your own hands. You know, we also sometimes show a lack of trust or discontentment in his timing for what we might be longing for. Or even a lack of trust in dreams that don't come to fruition. Mo Moses, at the end of his life, he longed for 40 years to lead the people into the promised land. What must it have been like to be told that you will not get to go? What must it have been like to be standing there right on the edge, looking down on it, almost able to taste it, and you're told you do not get to go? How hard is it to trust the Lord in those things? Well, another way that we might apply this to our lives by thinking about how our sin can veil Christ from those around us. People are always observing us, especially those who are closest to us. I think about this with my kids. I was thinking about it quite a bit this week. How if I come home from a day that's been frustrating or difficult, challenging, and they do something that kind of just sets me off, you know, they're, they're, they're disobeying something that I've told them to do and I kind of act out rashly in my sin, that's not pointing them to Christ. In fact, what I'm doing is hiding the work that he has been doing in my life as he has been sanctifying me, as he has been making me more and more in the image and likeness of Jesus. When I react in those ways, I hide him from, from those around me. And I think that that's immensely convicting. How should I respond? What should it look like? You know, who is Christ? He is patient and forgiving. He's gentle. He's honest, faithful. Those are the things that should be represented in my life. Paul says, it's not my life that I live, but Christ who now lives in me, right? We are to put on Christ. He is to be on display for the world to see. It is a, it is a witness to those around us. I'm sure all of you have been around one of those people where you just know that guy or that girl, they know and they love the Lord Jesus because everything about them just exudes who he is as a person. It's what we're called to be. It's what we're called to do. Well, I'll wrap up with this because Deuteronomy 34, I don't think is meant to be just a passage about punishment and judgment. We need to end on a bit of a higher, a higher note. I think that this passage really is showing God's grace and his mercy and his kindness to, to Moses. He didn't have to let Moses see the land, but he brings Moses up onto this mountain peak where he can see all of it. 
You know, the easternmost peak in Rocky Mountain National Park is called Twin Sisters, and I've hiked it a few times, and on like a really cold, refreshing, clear morning, it's amazing how far you can see. You can see Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins. You can see all the way out to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Moses is up on this peak and he's getting to foresee. He's getting a vision of the promise that God has made of all the land. And it's as if the Lord is saying to Moses, you got them to the edge and now they're going to go in. The promise is about to be fulfilled. And what happens next? Moses dies. And I think, I, you know, I, don't, I can't think of anyone else in the Bible that it said that Yahweh God Almighty took his body and buried him in the earth. Moses was buried by the Lord. And Moses was called the one in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 34. He was the one who was, there has not been a prophet who has arisen like him in all of Israel, whom the Lord knew face to face. He didn't get to go in, but in his death, when he's immediately translated into the glory and presence of Yahweh God Almighty in heaven, what do you think he learns? I think he learns immediately that the land was just a shadow pointing to something far greater and far better, an eternal land that we will one day get to dwell in with our God. And so Moses, he's not excommunicated in his relationship with the Lord because of the sin in Numbers 20. The punishment's severe. It's fitting. But guess what? He does go to the promised land. Matthew chapter 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration. Who shows up in the promised land with Jesus? Elijah and Moses. And Moses is talking with Jesus about the exodus that Jesus is about to lead as he's going to bring people into the true promised land. And I can't help but wonder what was Moses thinking when he's standing there with Jesus and he's reminded that this is the rock who provided living water for the people who was with them from beginning to end. Our confession of faith said that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I think that that is displayed in this story with the death of Moses. And so as we look forward, as we get ready for the people of God to enter into the promised land and as we get ready to go through the book of Judges, be reminded that we need to trust the Lord. We need to trust the rock who saves. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus and his work in our life. Father, I pray that as we consider just this death, that it would sink into us that you alone can provide for our every need. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.